Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. The Everlasting Man by G.K. Chesterton Part 1 On the Creature Called Man Chapter 2 Professors and Prehistoric Men Part 2 Another distinguished writer, again, in commenting on the cave drawings attributed to the Neolithic men of the reindeer period, said that none of their pictures appeared to have any religious purpose, and he seemed almost to infer that they had no religion. I can hardly imagine a thinner thread of argument than this, which reconstructs the very inmost moods of the prehistoric mind from the fact that somebody who has scrawled a few sketches on a rock, from what motive we do not know, for what purpose we do not know, acting under what customs or conventions we do not know, may possibly have found it easier to draw reindeer than to draw religion. He may have drawn it because it was his religious symbol. He may have drawn it because it was not his religious symbol. He may have drawn anything except his religious symbol. He may have drawn his real religious symbol somewhere else, or it may have been deliberately destroyed when it was drawn. He may have done or not done half a million things, but in any case, it is an amazing leap of logic to infer that he had no religious symbol, or even to infer from his having no religious symbol that he had no religion. Now, this particular case happens to illustrate the insecurity of these guesses very clearly. For a little while afterwards, people discovered not only paintings, but sculptures of animals in the caves. Some of these were said to be damaged with dints or holes supposed to be the marks of arrows, and the damaged images were conjectured to be the remains of some magic rite of killing the beasts in effigy, while the undamaged images were explained in connection with another magic rite invoking fertility upon the herds. Here again, there is something faintly humorous about the scientific habit of having it both ways. If the image is damaged, it proves one superstition, and if it is undamaged, it proves another. Here again, there is a rather reckless jumping to conclusions. It has hardly occurred to the speculators that a crowd of hunters imprisoned in winter in a cave might conceivably have aimed at a mark for fun, as a sort of primitive parlor game. But in any case, if it was done out of superstition, what has become of the thesis that it had nothing to do with religion? The truth is that all this guesswork has nothing to do with anything. It is not half such a good parlor game as shooting arrows at a carved reindeer, for it is shooting them into the air. Such speculators rather tend to forget, for instance, that men in the modern world also sometimes make marks in caves. When a crowd of trippers is conducted through the labyrinth of the marvelous grotto or the magic stalactite cavern, it has been observed that hieroglyphics spring into sight where they have passed, initials and inscriptions which the learned refuse to refer to any remote date. But the time will come when these inscriptions will really be of remote date, and if the professors of the future are anything like the professors of the present, they will be able to deduce a vast number of very vivid and interesting things from these cave writings of the 20th century. If I know anything about the breed, and if they have not fallen away from the full-blooded confidence of their fathers, they will be able to discover the most fascinating facts about us from the initials left in the magic grotto by Ari and Ariet, 
possibly in the form of two intertwined A's. From this alone they will know, one, that as the letters are rudely chipped with a blunt pocket knife, the 20th century possessed no delicate graving tools, and was unacquainted with the art of sculpture. Two, that as the letters are capital letters, our civilization never evolved any small letters, or anything like a running hand. Three, that because initial consonants stand together in an unpronounceable fashion, our language was possibly akin to Welsh, or, more probably, of the early Semitic type that ignored vowels. Four, that as the initials of Ari and Ariet do not, in any special fashion, profess to be religious symbols, our civilization possessed no religion. Perhaps the last is about the nearest to the truth, for a civilization that had religion would have a little more reason. It is commonly affirmed, again, that religion grew in a very slow and evolutionary manner, and even that it grew not from one cause, but from a combination that might be called a coincidence. Generally speaking, the three chief elements in the combination are, first, the fear of the chief of the tribe, whom Mr. Wells insists on calling, with regrettable familiarity, the old man. Second, the phenomena of dreams. And third, the sacrificial associations of the harvest and the resurrection symbolized in the growing corn. I may remark in passing that it seems to me very doubtful psychology to refer one living and single spirit to three dead and disconnected causes if they were merely dead and disconnected causes. Suppose Mr. Wells, in one of his fascinating novels of the future, were to tell us that there would arise among men a new and as yet nameless passion, of which men will dream as they dream of first love, for which they will die as they die for a flag and a fatherland. I think we should be a little puzzled if he told us that this singular sentiment would be a combination of the habit of smoking woodbines the increase of the income tax, and the pleasure of a motorist in exceeding the speed limit. We could not easily imagine this, because we could not imagine any connection between the three, or any common feeling that would include them all. Nor could anyone imagine any connection between corn and dreams and an old chief with a spear, unless there was already a common feeling to include them all. But if there was such a common feeling, it could only be the religious feeling and these things could not be the beginnings of a religious feeling that existed already. I think anybody's common sense will tell him that it is far more likely that this sort of mystical sentiment did exist already, and that, in the light of it, dreams and kings and cornfields could appear mystical then, as they can appear mystical now. For the plain truth is that all this is a trick of making things seem distant and dehumanized, merely by pretending not to understand things that we do understand. It is like saying that prehistoric men had an ugly and uncouth habit of opening their mouths wide at intervals and stuffing strange substances into them, as if we had never heard of eating. It is like saying that the terrible troglodytes of the Stone Age lifted alternate legs in rotation, as if we never heard of walking. If it were meant to touch the mystical nerve and awaken us to the wonder of walking and eating, it might be a legitimate fancy, as it is here intended to kill the mystical nerve and deaden us to the wonder of religion. It is, 
irrational rubbish. It pretends to find something incomprehensible in the feelings that we all comprehend. Who does not find dreams mysterious, and feel that they lie on the dark borderland of being? Who does not feel the death and resurrection of the growing things of the earth as something near to the secret of the universe? Who does not understand that there must always be the savor of something sacred about authority, and the solidarity that is the soul of the tribe? If there be any anthropologist who really finds these things remote and impossible to realize, we can say nothing of that scientific gentleman except that he has not got so large and enlightened a mind as a primitive man. To me, it seems obvious that nothing but a spiritual sentiment already active could have clothed these separate and diverse things with sanctity. To say that religion came from reverencing a chief or sacrificing at a harvest is to put a highly elaborate cart before a really primitive horse. It is like saying that the impulse to draw pictures came from the contemplation of the pictures of reindeers in the cave. In other words, it is explaining painting by saying that it arose out of the work of painters, or accounting for art by saying that it arose out of art. It is even more like saying that the things we call poetry arose as the result of certain customs such as that of an ode being officially composed to celebrate the advent of spring, or that of a young man rising at a regular hour to listen to the skylark, and then writing his report on a piece of paper. It is quite true that young men often become poets in the spring, and it is quite true that when once there are poets, no mortal power can restrain them from writing about the skylark. But the poems did not exist before the poets. The poetry did not arise out of the poetic forms. In other words, it is hardly an adequate explanation of how a thing appeared for the first time to say it existed already. Similarly, we cannot say that religion arose out of the religious forms, because that is only another way of saying that it only arose when it existed already. It needed a certain sort of mind to see that there was anything mystical about the dreams or the dead as it needed a particular sort of mind to see that there was anything poetical about the skylark or the spring. That mind was presumably what we call the human mind, very much as it exists to this day. For mystics still meditate upon death and dreams, as poets still write about spring and skylarks. But there is not the faintest hint to suggest that anything short of the human mind we know feels any of these mystical associations at all. A cow in a field seems to derive no lyrical impulse or instruction from her unrivaled opportunities for listening to the skylark. And similarly, there is no reason to suppose that live sheep will ever begin to use dead sheep as the basis of a system of elaborate ancestor worship. It is true that in the spring a young quadruped's fancy may lightly turn to thoughts of love, but no succession of springs has ever led it to turn, however lightly, to thoughts of literature. And in the same way, while it is true that a dog has dreams, while most other quadrupeds do not seem even to have that, we have waited a long time for the dog to develop his dreams into an elaborate system or religious ceremonial. We have waited so long that we have really ceased to expect it. And we no more look to see a dog apply his dreams to ecclesiastical construction than to see him examine his dreams by the rules of psychoanalysis. It is obvious, in short, 
that for some reason or other these natural experiences, and even natural excitements, never do pass the line that separates them from creative expression like art and religion in any creature except man. They never do. They never have. And it is now to all appearance very improbable that they ever will. It is not impossible, in the sense of self-contradictory, that we should see cows fasting from grass every Friday, or going on their knees as in the old legend about Christmas Eve. It is not, in that sense, impossible that cows should contemplate death until they can lift up a sublime psalm of lamentation to the tune the old cow died of. It is not, in that sense, impossible that they should express their hopes of a heavenly career in a symbolic dance, in honor of the cow that jumped over the moon. It may be that the dog will at last have laid in a sufficient store of dreams to enable him to build a temple to Cerberus, as a sort of canine trinity. It may be that his dreams have already begun to turn into visions capable of verbal expression, in some revelation about the dog star, as the spiritual home for lost dogs. These things are logically possible, in the sense that it is logically difficult to prove the universal negative which we call an impossibility. But all that instinct for the probable, which we call common sense, must long ago have told us that the animals are not to all appearance evolving in that sense, and that, to say the least, we are not likely to have any personal evidence of their passing from the animal experience to the human experiments. But spring and death, and even dreams, considered merely as experiences, are their experiences as much as ours. The only possible conclusion is that these experiences, considered as experiences, do not generate anything like a religious sense in any mind except a mind like ours. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, t'will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. <laughs>